Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest is Dwayne of Readers, Alberto Mangel. Alberto wrote one of my favourite non-fiction books of last year, The Library at Night, a wide-ranging, captivating meditation on libraries both private and public, real and imaginary. In his new book, entitled simply A Reader on Reading, he brings together a collection of reflections on the activity, which we probably often engage in with great pleasure, but without thinking very much about what it means to be a reader. His topics range from Homer to Pinocchio, Alice in Wonderland to Dante. Yet you never have the feeling that Alberto's vast reading is being deployed merely to dazzle, still less to intimidate. He's much more of an impassioned guide, pointing out things you may have missed, encouraging you to tarry and consider the beauty of something which might previously have escaped your attention. Alberto writes vividly in the book about some of his earliest boyhood reading experiences of Alice in Wonderland, Treasure Island and Pinocchio. So I began by asking him to take me back to those first encounters. I started reading uh, fairy tales and, and Enid Blyton. This was, as a, as a very small child, I, I learned to read when I was three or so. And I discovered that uh, it was wonderful. I no longer needed to depend on the will of my nurse to uh, enter a, a story. Gradually, I, I looked for more difficult stuff. I think that uh, we are being told that uh, what is quick and easy is what is best for us, but we really enjoy difficulty and surmounting difficulty. So from those early fairy tales, I, I, I went on to, uh, to novels such as Alice in Wonderland and the, the novels of, of, of Stevenson and uh, Little Women. I didn't care much for Little Men. And uh, I enjoyed not understanding everything. I enjoyed finding difficult words that I had to look up in the dictionary. I enjoyed knowing that I was entering an adventure that was not within the limits of what I already knew. And I think that is what remains exciting. Uh, whether you go further or whether you go deeper, you want to go to a place that exercises your intellectual muscles. And Alice in Wonderland clearly exerted then and exerts still a, p a particular fascination. Is that in part because the business of reading, of making sense of the world, is so often foregrounded in the text? Alice is important to me because it always seems to be a comment on what is happening in my life as a child, as an adolescent, as a young man. And now as an old man, there is always something in Alice that responds to what I'm, I'm thinking or feeling. And it is, as you say, so deeply grounded in, in language and language grounded in thought that the, uh, the wordplay, the puns and the games are, are not meaningless. They are always very meaningful and tell us about language and ask questions about language that are in fact questions about our way of thinking. When uh, Humpty Dumpty declares that when you deal with, with language, what matters is to show who is the boss, that is a very profound <laughs> declaration of our ambition 
when we're using that uh, that particular tool. When Tweedledee and Tweedledum tell Alice that she's nothing but the Red King's dream, there is an existential use of language uh, that is profoundly rooted in our our deepest nightmares and so on. There, there, there is always something that goes far, far beyond the pleasantry of 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 uh, the the scene, the 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 setting of a certain situation, which which is comic, of course. But there's so much more in Carol. I don't know how it happened. This is one of those literary miracles. We all know that the the situation in which the story was created, that he was uh, rowing with his friend Duckworth and the three little girls, and they wanted a story, and so he started telling this story. And at a certain point, it's Duckworth who, who turns to Carol and says, are you making this up? And or have you have you composed this before? And 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 and, and Carol says no. It, it, I'm just making it up as it as it comes. And when you think that uh, to make Alice in Wonderland up as it comes, it's like imagining that King Lear was composed this way or Dante's Divine Comedy. It has uh, this this. Uh, absolute perfection that holds the world together and offers a mirror of our experience as as few other books do. Tell me about your fascination with interrogating the notion of what reading is because if if one picked up this book in a sort of fairly superficial way you might think it was a book of literary criticism but it it very much isn't it's doing something quite different from that so so what is it that draws you to to really focus on that commerce between the reader and the, and the text my starting point seems always to be reading i think that as a child i i realized that i was a reader and i had very little interest in being a writer and stepping onto the other side of, of the page. And so the question is, who really am I? Once again, from Alice, the question that the caterpillar asks Alice, who are you? Uh, well, who am I? I, I? I am a reader, and what does that mean? What What is then my relationship to the world? Uh, does it always go through words? Uh, is that, that filter a positive or a negative one? Does it weaken or, or strengthen my, my experience? And uh, these questions are, are always there. I have a, a, a profound faith in language. I know, I know it's a weak tool. I know it's, it's fallible. I know that it never conveys what we want it to convey. And it cannot be deciphered in the way we want it to be deciphered. But it's the only thing we have. Uh, a book I, I much admire, uh, Dawkins's The Selfish Gene, proposes a Darwinian notion of the imagination being a tool of survival that our species develops in order to recreate the world so that we don't have to experience it in the flesh before we experience it in the flesh. We can imagine what it's like to put our hand in the mouth of a tiger without having to put our hand there. And so with this sense of the imagination, the use of language, the, the, the creation of literary works as a survival tool, I find that an entire new field opens up. In fact, now in, in a number of uh, American universities and perhaps in, in uh, Great Britain as well, there are studies being conducted on the relationship between the enjoyment of literature and the development of thinking and the development of consciousness and 
the, the formation of, of emotion and thought. So there is something very true in the fact that reading about uh, Robinson Crusoe or uh, Emma Bovary gives us a sense of, of who we are, what our relationship to others is, what our relationship to the world is. Psychologists have always said that literature is a better tool than the actual experience for understanding the human psyche, and readers have known this forever. You say forever, but one of the interesting things that your book emphasized to me was that this practice of reading, as we're discussing it, is really of recent date in terms of human history. And I mean, it, it came across to me from the book that perhaps Michel de Montaigne was perhaps the first modern reader in the sense of examining the self and having a relationship with the text, because before that text had been either mnemonic aids or written in praise of God. But that, that sort of modern sensibility that you're, you're interested in this book seems pretty much to start with him. I'm cautious about making that sort of statement because uh, one thing you you discover very quickly is that our history is not linear. It's, if anything, uh, circular or in the shape of a spiral. That is to say, we we go back to things that we have uh, abandoned, we rediscover that which we have forgotten, and uh, we make new use of, of, of things that we used before. So this attitude of reading to know who we are, or rather the knowledge that we read to know who we are, you can find traces of it in very early literature. Now, of course, if our ancestors read in that way or not, we, we don't know because of that. we we have very few traces. But it is possible when the Epic of Gilgamesh, so we, we, we're talking about something written not long after the, the mature development of, of, of writing, this very early example of, of our literature already brings the reader to the foreground, tells you from the very first lines that you as the reader must enter the city of Uruk and climb to a tower and discover there a coffer that holds the lapis lazuli tablets that contain the story that you're going to read. You, you are in a postmodernist situation. You are there in a, a novel that tells you that what you're going to read is of your own making or discovery. So we have to be cautious about how original we are. What is true is that we have recently developed this relationship between literary studies and and physiological studies and uh, how the brain works when we read fiction as opposed to when we read a computer manual, for instance. That is a very interesting development. Tell me about the notion of the ideal reader, which you write about at, at various points in the book. Why, why, why is this ideal reader of interest to you, and is this an unattainable ideal? Yeah, of course, it's, it's, it's unattainable, um, and uh, my text, uh, which I call Notes Towards the Definition of an Ideal Reader, is, is, uh, is tongue-in-cheek. But writing requires a reader. One of the, the paradoxes of the invention of this tool is that reading had to be developed before writing could be developed. You, you have to be able to know how to decipher a code before you can set that code down. So it, it works 
works the other way round, which means that in every piece of writer there is a reader who is implicit, even if it is the, the, the very author who produces that text. And so literature develops with the notion that there is always at least uh, there are three characters, the, the writer, the, the person in the text, and then the, the absent reader, the reader who will come to the text and bring it to life. And this reader, this, this ideal reader, of course, changes according to what uh, St. Thomas Aquinas invented, which was the intentions of the writer, which was uh, also a literary development. So you have the ideal intentions of the writer, you have the ideal text that is what the writer would have wanted to write had the writer all the right instruments, and then you have the ideal reader who will bring the whole thing to life in a perfect way. I think that the most we can say is that the ideal reader is the good enough reader, it's a Winnicottian idea. The reader who manages to give the text its its best shot, its best chance. We have to remember at the same time that that reader has very little compassion for the author. It's only the text that counts. And so no matter how much pleading the author can make from the other side of, of the page, the reader will not be be influenced by that at all. And so from the hundreds of thousands, millions of texts produced, the reader chooses maybe one, maybe two, and those are the ones that remain on our shelves and all the rest get swept away. So we as readers have a, a great responsibility and a great power, and I think we enjoy it immensely in spite of society telling us that uh, we are worth nothing. One of my very favorite essays in the book was the one on Pinocchio. Mm. And there you were looking at the ways in which reading was presented in that text and showing that in Pinocchio, reading doesn't go beyond a certain stage, first of all, deciphering, but then really just the, the transmitting of messages which society wishes to impart in order to indoctrinate uh, the young. And you contrasted that in a very interesting way with Alice in Wonderland again. I wonder if you could say a bit about about what you were exploring in that essay. I uh, wrote the the essay on how Pinocchio learned to read because I was and continue to be very worried about our education systems. We have turned our schools and universities instead of places where to expand the imagination and learn how to think into into training schools for slaves. And in Pinocchio, because the, the principal part of the plot is the fact that Pinocchio needs to go to school where he will learn to read, I wondered what that meant, learning to read for Pinocchio. And what it means simply is that he will go from learning the alphabet to learn how to decipher a text. But nowhere in that adventure is a deep exploration of what it means to be a reader, how to become a reader in the fullest sense, that recognition we were talking about of our own experience and the experience of the world uh, through the words of others. In Alice, of course, that exploration is constant. The world of words is for Alice a constant inter interrogation. And she will learn, for instance, from, from the White Knight, 
who is going to sing her a, a song and the name of the song is so and so that the name of the song is not the same as the uh, song itself and that the song itself is not what the song is called and so on. There is uh, such a profound analysis of what language means in Addis, which is nowhere apparent in Pinocchio. At, at one point in the book, you <coughs> quote the French finance minister Christine Lagarde saying, think less, work more. I got this the impression that you felt that, that our culture pays lip service to, to literature and, and literary culture, but in fact, either Lagarde's motto or perhaps um, think less, consume more, was actually a more accurate reflection of the way that, uh, that society works today. We are, are driven by a self-destructive force, which is greed. And this is not a, a new notion. Dante already in the Divine Comedy condemns greed above all other human compulsions and believes that it is what leads us to our own destruction. Uh, we have built this uh, economic machinery whose only purpose is to produce financial gain. And uh, at the cost of our own lives. So un unless we, we, we change that, we will perish. There's, there's no other way out. I mean, the scientists have given us the date to which we can, we can go, and after that, there, there's nothing. It's the, the reign of the termites or whatever will take over. So um, we have to bring our societies back to regarding the intellectual act as uh, the most important of, of, of human concerns. We have to restore prestige to the intellectual act. We have to put the library back at the center of society and displace the bank that has taken over not for any other reason but to survive. These are survival tools in the same way that other animals have other capacities. Our capacity is that of imagining and thinking. And if we lose that, we lose the quality that makes us human. Alberto Mangel. A reader on reading is out now in hardback. That's all from this podcast from Blackwell Online. But you can find out more about this book and several million others by going to blackwell.co.uk. You'll also find an extensive podcast archive there. Just click on the podcast tab on the home page. I hope you'll join me again soon for another in-depth author interview. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.